Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, here we are with the last episode of Finding the Front for 2021 and what a cracker it is. In this episode, we have the enormous opportunity take some time out to get to know highly regarded gold miner and all-round good bloke, Rally Finlayson. For those listeners who aren't familiar with Rally, Rally is a goldfields born and bred lad from outback station country near Menzies, which is about 130 kilometres north of Kalgoorlie. He really has had a crack at life and his story is simply a ripper. He talks candidly about his upbringing on the station, building Saracen minerals, the hugely important role his family plays, the challenges of the super pit acquisition. He talks about working closely with and merging with Northern Star, his current studies that have taken him to the Harvard University in the US, and his excitement about his new role with Genesis Minerals, which takes him back to the Goldfields area that dominated his family heritage and upbringing. This is seriously exciting. So without a moment to lose, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to Finding the Front, Rally Finlayson. Rally, great to have you. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for coming. Gosh, we are really, really uh, so, so grateful you could take some time out. I know you're a busy guy. Not only are you back from your stint in the US at Harvard, but you've taken the time out of your family time to come and have a chat. So really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. Ralph, there's so much to talk about and we do only have a limited period of time, but I just want to get a feel for Rally and your total story going right back to when you grew up in Giedemeyer and it's just such an amazing story. We talked about it beforehand. What you've been able to achieve in your life so far is just outstanding and from one country boy to another, it's quite inspiring. So, mate, if we could just go back a little bit, you grew up at Giedemeyer Station outside of Menzies. Yep. Now, the school of the air, your grandfather was Cherry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and your, your dad's John and your mum's Kathy. Kathy is a Layla. Yep. John's a Finlayson. And I understand that, you know, there's a big tie-up between Jedemiah and then before that was Melita. For all those that are listening, we're talking about the gold fields, right out near Leonora, near Menzies, and now the home of some of the most talked about gold prospects in Australia. So how was it? Uh, awesome experience. And um, obviously, as you said, you grew up on the land as well. And it's one thing that uh, being in the city is great, but you do miss your ties and any excuse to go out to the, to the mines and get back on the land, I absolutely take that up. But going back to your, the start of your story, so Melita Station, just out of Leonora, which is about, um, about a three-hour drive out of, out of Kalgoorlie to the north. Cherry um, and Helen, my grandparents grew up there, five, five children. And the, the story evolves where, you know, John, John my dad, and then um, and, and Ross end up taking on Melita Station and, and Cherry bought the neighbouring property called Jedema, which is just further to the south. So as time will evolve, and I'll, we'll get to Genesis at the back end of this podcast, no doubt, but 
the uh, the boundary between um, Melita Station and Kikani Station was right where the Ulysses Gold Project is, which is basically the Genesis project at the moment. So there's photos of my cousin Robert and I as, um, you know, three foot tall or not even, probably two foot tall, getting photos in a, in a car bay right there. And in the background, there's an old mine pit, and that is the Ulysses Project, which we own. If you go about five kilometres further to the east of that point, there's a um, project called Orient Well, which uh, Ross Finlayson was involved with with Melita Mining, Bowds and all these crew. They mined that back in the sort of the early 90s. And hasn't been touched since and again that's now part of the portfolio and if you go about 28 kilometres further to the north there's a project called Gwali which has um, got a lot of steep history which was owned and operated by Sons of Gwali which is my uncles on my mum's side the Layla side so Peter and Chris Layla so on both sides of the family that's fair to say it's steeped in, in mining history but of course prior to that and in parallel with that steeped in pastoral history so there's a massive overlay and um to say I'm getting drawn back into that country is an understatement because... Um, oh, it's very much an understatement. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, how exciting. Yeah, it is. And it's, a, it's fascinating going back to some of these places and even going to, to Gualia and the sort of the, just the history as you, as you go, sort of drive into the Gualia town site. It's just, um, you can only picture what it was like back in the day, a hundred and so years ago for the early times to come in and how tough it was then. And, and here we are now moving forward and, um, you know, the... The place is steep with so much history from a, both a pastoral and a, and a mining um, perspective, obviously, in more recent times. So when you grew up on Jedemai, was John and Kath, your, your mum and dad, yeah. running sheep, cattle? Uh, sheep only. Yeah. Um, the odd stray cow would come across from next door and we'd sort of, you know, quickly chuck that on a truck. Um, <laughs> send it back, of course. Yeah. And, and feral goats is probably the only thing that made us an income. And I just remember, you know, like, we generally had pretty well one revenue stream each year was sort of a, a wool check anywhere from, you know, really bad season might not be a lot to a good year might be 130,000, something in that order. And from that, we've got to maintain, you know, three quarters of a million acres of property and send three kids to, to boarding school. So it was, it was really tough going. And I think for me, a massive influence on my life to have that upbringing and, and being as tough as it was, it was, our property was sort of renowned in the whole goldfield so for probably being the poorest as far as being able to, to yield sheep on it. But for that reason, it sort of instilled a really strong work ethic into Daniel, my older brother, Marnie, and, and myself to be able to hold us in really good stead for the rest of our, our lives and careers and from a work and also a personal perspective as well. Well, I'll get on to the success stories of the kids, but I mean, when you were growing up, you were school of the air. How yeah. did you find that before, uh, you, before you then get, got sent away to school? Yeah, well, I, I was just thinking about it before. So school of the air, I'm halfway through doing Harvard, so I'm not sure if there's any <laughs> school of the air Harvard graduates going around, but I'd love to hear from them if there is. But um, for me, school of the air, I, I sort of took the piss a bit, to be honest with you. So we get the, the, all the books sent to us at the start of the term. I tried to smash through it as quick as we could, sort of in the first three weeks, try and get the full terms with the work done. And then all I was required to do from that point forward was sort of generally half an hour on the radio every day and the rest of the time I'd be out in the motorbike helping dad so you know dad sort of uh, very keen on free labour or cheap labour so yeah. he was he was no arguments from there mum sort of put up a protest every now and then that uh, maybe I needed to apply myself a bit more but at that stage for all of that phase I was absolutely convinced I was going to go back on the station and um, like a lot of the fathers do they try and convince their kids not to follow their path but I yeah. think this yeah. one particularly would have been a really difficult one because it was hard enough when we were doing it back then let alone trying to, to run sheep on those properties now, particularly with the dogs and dingoes running through the property. So for me, sort of started a bit on the back foot, but also from a life experience, massively ahead of everyone else, in my opinion. Went to boarding school for five years, six years, which sort of taught me a strong streak of independence and you, you learn pretty quickly to 
to look after yourself in that environment, particularly sort of in those eras, sort of late 80s, early 90s, it was reasonably tough in those environments. So it was a pretty pretty steep and but good learning curve for me. Oh, absolutely. So there's yourself, Dan and Marnie. Yep. Now, look, I've, I've been fortunate enough to know the Finlessons well enough over the years that I've bought a fair few cray pots off Brother Dan, Durian Bay Marine Supplies. Yep. Shout out to Dan if yep. you're listening. And then your sister Marnie, who's been extremely successful, who's currently the managing director for battery material for Rio Tinto. Yeah. Um, I mean, you must be very proud of her yeah. her and, and what she's been able to achieve in the mining sector. Yeah. Uh, just before I go into Marnie, just back to Dan for a sec. Yeah. So uh, I'm the worst cray fisherman <laughs> possibly out there. Um, so I grew up in, obviously, in the outback of Western Australia, so there's not much water and crayfish around, but... Um, Last week caught 40 crays off, um, off four of Dan's pots, so it just shows a testament to come back to your earlier point about how good quality they are. And uh, still haven't lost one, which is also a miracle because they're three years in, so that's uh, another good Oh, that's outstanding. I've used them too, and so is my father-in-law, and we uh, never fail with yeah. those. Such quality build, and he's been doing it for such a long time. Oh, he has, um, sort of close to 20 years now. Yeah. And um, if you go into the workshop, it is amazing. It's just, um, it's all done by hand, and... Um, the care and love that goes into making those pots is outstanding. So, uh, yeah, no, d- definitely a shout-out to Dan and then Dream Marine Supplies. Yeah, back in the month. And Mandy. Yeah, Mandy as well. Yeah, <laughs> she's uh, she very much runs a show in there. So uh, uh, it's, a, it's a really good team effort. And even the boys, they've got three three boys that have all gone in and chipped in. A bit like I explained on growing up on the station, school holidays are all there helping out. So uh, a massive team effort for those guys. Yeah, so Martin's, uh with Rio, so... Quite different career paths, I suppose, for the two of us. I've very much gone down the, the junior end and um, Marnes has been with Rio for, for 20 years and built different paths, I suppose, to similar points where she's just taken on the, um, the MD role of the battery minerals, which is um, obviously a massive thematic. And yes. um, data project in, um, in Serbia, where she's come back from, is, um, is gathering momentum and it's just been a massive, massive effort from, from her and, and, uh, and Russ and the family. Obviously, he'd spent... Um, the last couple of years over there in, um, you know, obviously through COVID and other trying circumstances and um, it's been a, a massive learning curve for her but also a massive achievement for what she's been able to achieve with the project but obviously within Rio and growing her career. And within those circumstances. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, there was a great article on her in the West Australian not so long ago. Yeah, it was and, um, and, and I've, you know, I've listened to her speak about her experiences um, at, you know, forums and also um, personally. It's been a, you know, a life-changing experience for the entire family and I think they're all richer for that experience but also um, just an amazing role in the thematic we're seeing at the moment. So, um, you know, strap yourself in. I think she's going to do really well. Just quite amazing the whole, what you've all been able to achieve and, and I think coming from your, your background on the station, I think you've learnt the value of a dollar. Yeah. Would be fair to say. Yeah. Oh, and probably the value of um, saving a dollar. Saving um, a dollar, yeah. I think my best experience is certainly on the station. Um, the old man had an uncanny ability to reprocess, recycle things um, to for many purposes, um, simply on the basis we you know, couldn't afford to go and buy new new products. And I suppose another experience I had was um, when I was working in, in New Zealand, a place called Craze. It was GRD McRae's in now Oceana Gold and um, a really low grade, sort of tough mine back in the back in the day. But it's amazing as a mine site that didn't have a lot of other mining around it. That it was really important for all the employees to make this mine work, and it wasn't just a, an owner coming in saying we'll do this. Actually, the whole workforce was around 
trying to conserve money to make it all viable so they could all continue to have jobs and you know, put money on the table. So for me, that was a really good learning experience in the mining game about how to be really frugal with, with, with your spend. So the combination of growing up in the station and that have been two things that have held me in really good stead. Pivotal. Moving through, I mean, you talked about your schooling. You went to Guildford yep. and did well enough to then be accepted into the WA School of Mines, an institution. Yeah. So the WA School of Mines has had some quite well-known alumni, Dave Flanagan, Bill Beaumont, and Shane McClay. Yep. I think being from Menzies, Leonor area, coming into there, was that just a, a natural progression? When did you know that you wanted to be a geologist or be in the mining game? You know, was it at school? Was it, at, was it prior to going to school? Or because you were surrounded by the Ross Finlaysons yep. of the world who were looking at gold? What sort of inspired you? Probably all of the above. I suppose the other thing that was in the forefront of mine, so when I was um, sort of back into school, sort of school leavers, I had a gap year, so I actually worked up at, up at the Gualia Mine, which I talked about before in yeah. Leonora. So I was a bit of a rat bag. I wasn't probably the best behaved kid at that stage of my life. So for me, my mother particularly was very keen for it to keep me reasonably close. So they were sort of on the transition between coming off the station and moving into Kalgoorlie. So she was sort of keen on that, and also Marnie had a big influence. She was studying med, um, metallurgy at the School of Mines as well, three years ahead of me. So okay. combination of those two, the love for being on the land was absolutely pivotal. And I'm glad I've convinced you that I'm a geologist. I'm actually a surveyor. Um, started my uh, first degree was a survey degree, and that was a combination of love my maths, but also love sort of getting my hands dirty and doing stuff. I didn't really have a strong view about what particular path I wanted to take within the industry, but I just felt like, and when I was looking at surveying, I was actually looking at surveying more broader, thinking maybe do cadastral type, something a bit more broader. But once I got into it and realised that sort of mining was absolutely in the blood, I can be back on the land. On the land. School of Mines is obviously a perfect offering in yes. that regard. So, you know, built some fantastic networks, as everyone who would say that's been through the School of Mines. But for me, started off doing the surveying degree, realised that sort of had a bit of a, a ceiling in that in that role, so I thought okay, I'll roll into doing a um, mining engineering sort of diploma on the side of it, which I did, which sort of gave me more breadth than what I could do. And then um, once I sort of worked into that, for realised I sort of wanted to get into the management side. Yes, I really wanted to be a general manager, so I figured finance was quite an important adjunct to that. So I went off and did a they called a Fincia course, something that's Kaplan now. So um, sort of did that as a sort of a, a bolt on, if you like, to give me the finance side of it. And I was on a roll, I'd done about sort of 10 or 11 years of study at this stage. I thought, oh, I might as well keep going. So I <laughs> rolled into a uh, mineral economics uh, slash MBA at Curtin University. And what I found at that stage, I was getting into reasonably senior roles. So I was sort of COO coming into CEO of Saracen at this time. And for me, study at that point became less about the piece of paper and far more around the experience. So what I did with the MBA, mineral economics, I actually just cherry-picked all the units that I thought were going to be beneficial to me, like valuing projects and those sorts of things. And when I started getting into the sort of the, the law and accounting side of it, I sort of felt that was uh, not quite as engaging for me. So I actually stopped the, the study. It's probably only sort of maybe a year and a half away from finishing it, but I just felt like I wasn't enjoying it. So I did the units that I thought were going to be beneficial, which I have been, and then um, I've taken a genuine sort of 10-year gap and then rolled into Harvard, which has been a sort of a three-year burn and rolled in it three years ago. Every time I went to go, we'd either do a big deal or a merger or something. So it sort of wasn't entirely appropriate for me out of action for, for two months. So as it played out, it's it's been perfect timing yes. in the sense of um, obviously a couple of COVID interruptions. So 
been able to do the Harvard study right in the in the heart of stepping away from Northern Star and into into Genesis. So it's actually meant I can properly allocate the time, which is what people have told me to be able to do is to to be able to fully focus on it. Yep. We've jumped ahead, but I think with regards to you graduating from the School of Mines, there's the story of, of how you joined Saracen. And look, this is where your, your life starts to just take a hockey stick approach. Is it true that you saw a, an advert, was it in the Kalgoorlie Miner for, there was Fieldy advert, yeah. and at the bottom they were looking for a mine manager? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it was in the um, one of those tiny little ones in the classified. So, you know, Guido Staltari, who was a founder, um, very frugal with his money, and um, you know that that ad must have cost thirty dollars, no more. Um, <laughs> and to get three fieldies and, a, and a, an eventual CEO out of it, compared to it was maybe good some, use of thirty dollars, yeah, exactly. And I was just fortunate I was actually looking in that area, to be honest with you. Luckily enough, the Calgary Miner is not a not a not a big paper, but a very good paper. So I, I managed to flick through it and caught my eye. And when I first rang in to say, okay, I better sort of explore this a bit further, got put through to of a consultant HR person and then they put me on to Guido and I thought Guido sort of a, an odd sort of a name I'm not sure I can trust this bloke and then um, the first interview I did with him I'd completely forgot about it was sort of set it for 11 o'clock I was actually working at Land Frankie at the time in south of Cambodia and this is a genuine true story went underground got about it thought oh crap I've got an hour to get back to surface I'm not going to get there so I went called into one of the refuge chambers which I knew had an outline, like a doll, obviously, yeah. into under the Telstra beam and um, and rang him up into into Melbourne. That's how the first interview was conducted from underground in the <laughs> refuge chamber. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then um, I went to the office about a month later, met with him in person, and he spent three quarters of an hour trying to convince me it was a bad idea. So I was in nickel. Nickel was at $50,000 a tonne. Gold was in the doldrums, and it was all around trying to test whether I was going to have the conviction if it didn't go well. And I said, well, I've only... I've only grown up and things being hard, so I don't know anything different. So yeah. I'm up for the up for the ride and um, took on the role. And the first three years were difficult. In fact, I went straight into a GFC, which is impossible, and then a few other crises along the way. But um, wouldn't change any of it because again, what what sort of doesn't break you makes you stronger at the end of the day. So, so. you you joined Saracen in 2008, 2007 December. Two, yeah, right. Okay, and then I mean the story goes you're you're managing director by 2013. Yeah. And Saracen starts its its rise. Just talk to me a little bit about Guado Stalteri. Yeah, so what a, I mean, what influence did he have on you? Oh, massive! And like, yeah, right from the first interview, which I mentioned before, trying to convince me not to join, and then all the way through, like I would have fired myself. I've often talked to people saying the first three years is probably on a monthly basis. I would have fired myself if I was in the similar position. But he, um, for me. I look back on and what I've sort of learned along the way is that um, it's like the old saying, sort of hire for, hire for attitude and train for, for, for skill or talent. So for me, he could see in me that what I, when I was making mistakes or not knowing something, I was working really hard to overcome that. And I was just fortunate he had the um, perseverance, I suppose, to be able to stick with me, gave me some really good mentors, Barry Parker being one that strings to mind that was on the board. And look, the first couple of years was a massive learning curve, but once you get that under your belt and a bit of trial by error and sort of sink or swim type approach, no better sort of start for me. And I owe a lot to Guido for seeing something in me, but also having the patience and perseverance to um, to uh, keep giving me a crack. And your drive has clearly been rewarded. Yeah, yeah. it has. And it's been um, rewarded in, in many ways, but I reckon for me, you know, people's massive for me. So 
no doubt we'll talk at the end of this about what what drives me. It's about sort of getting good like-minded people together and I like seeing young talent come through so that's why I still do a lot back with the School of Mines around making sure the next generation is coming through. People like Kyle D'Souza who's been you know, a big part of the Saracen team over the journey just love people with the Kyle type attitude and getting them really close to you because it's, um, you know, attitude's been a core value of Saracen forever and it's about you know, your attitude's contagious, so make sure it's a positive one because sometimes you can be in pretty tough environments and, you know, trying to run sheep on a pastoral property in the goldfields in 40 to 50 degree heat is challenging. But yes. if you've got a good attitude, it's amazing how much easier it is for you, but also people around you having a positive attitude makes it easier for everyone else. So for me, it's, it's the people's side's massive, yeah. It's interesting with regards to the, what, what, I mean, part from discussing about the meteoric rise of Saracen, what you've been able to do and give back to not only announce funding programs with the WA School of Mines, but you know, you've got major partners with the WA Netball, Shooting Stars, Clontarf Foundation, Jared Neesham, Core Learning Foundation, amongst others. Yeah. You know, clearly that's been part of your giving back. Yeah. And it's not just giving back's an interesting term or phrase, right? So it implies often when you talk about, so if you think about community engagement, there's sort of the ESG push for companies, which is great. Community is, is a really easy thing to do well. Um, and people just immediately think it's just throwing dollars around, which it, which it can be. And there is certainly a part of that. But the Shooting Stars is a really good example. So we launched a program through Marianne Drabniks, who is our people and culture manager at Saracen now with Northern Star. Um, and that was around um, in Leonora getting the shooting stars program into the into the Leonora High School and basically the program revolves around the fact that to be a part of the program you need to attend school so it's just about trying to get the um, the tenants up and it's been a phenomenal program for getting Aboriginal girls back into school but also the influence that it had on our people so what we'd do is we'd come in and they'd be part of that program we'd be playing netball games and I reckon it's a, a massive retention tool because if people yes. can feel like your company is doing it for the right reason, not just to tick an ESG box and put into a sustainability report, but it's a genuine commitment. It has a profound impact not only on people that are getting the benefit of it, but also your own your own people. So I think it's um it's a really easy thing to do and a really powerful tool. Oh absolutely. And it's and it clearly pays off in a lot of other ways other than commercial and financial terms. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Not only do you feel good about it, but yeah. others Get a lot of benefit. Yeah, and it just breaks some stigma down. Like it'd be yeah. so easy to operate in like in a town like Leonora. Like I said, I grew up in Leonora Menzies as a kid. So for me coming through, I, I sort of knew all the families, and a lot of those families are still there, just a couple of generations on. So it the community feels been lost a fair bit over time, and maybe it's flying flight. It certainly hasn't helped that. So I think whatever we can do to try and bring that community feel back back. closer, yep. it's amazing. You can just drop so many stigmas by actually being engaged. So, Raoul Saracen, so you're managing director um, and it's onwards and upwards. I sort of look through it and I think, well, gee, what can you take out of that? There's just so much. But the journey from turning from a junior into a company that became a mighty gold producer involved developing the business, the development of the mines, say, for example, Carisoo and Carisoo Dam and Thunderbox. You're a big backer of additional exploration. I, I sort of get the impression that you're the sort of guy if you can't you can't find it unless you're drilling for it yeah. sort of thing yeah the sort of thing that and importantly the attention to spend on these developments yeah were the notes I sort of made around the 
the Saracen journey. Yeah. And that, that word journey is, it's only a small part of your life, yeah. but it's, it, it's pretty significant. Yeah, it is. And I'm glad you use the word journey because I'd say a lot of those attributes you described were certainly the, what you'd say at Saracen, probably the second half of the journey. So I, th- I think about journey at Saracen as a sort of a decade long experience for me, certainly the second half, I think we nailed that pretty well. Um, learned a lot more about, you know, community. I spoke about, you know, people making sure they're really important and then the expiration spend. I think we probably underdid it early days. So Karari was was and still is the best, the, you know, the pinnacle asset at Carousel Dam. Um, it took us four years to realise we had a significant underground mine there and it's um, 350 metres away from the plant. And meanwhile, we're 120 kilometres away trying to find new discoveries. So, oh, my goodness. So you can sort of get a little bit distorted sometimes. And I think taking a step back, taking a holistic view and actually backing the team in when it's appropriate to do so and um, you know, putting appropriate measures in place to make sure you're putting dollars into the right space. So the best way to create value is certainly for exploration. Others, accountants might argue the best way to destroy value is exploration since a big black hole where all this money goes in and nothing comes back. So there is two ends of the spectrum, but again, you need to make sure you've got the right ground to start with and the right people to explore for. And if you get those two ingredients right, you generally get you know, pretty rewarded for that. The other part about the journey, though, with Saracen, so I remember distinctly, it was uh, 13th of July 2013, I was appointed managing director of Saracen. Within 10 days, gold price had the largest one-day fall, uh, possibly still in history. I don't think it even happened. It got eclipsed through the whole COVID thing. It dropped about $200 Aussie in one night. So share price, like you often, you know, Look at your share price when you become MD of something or to take on a new role. It was thirty-eight cents, and within a month, it was nine cents. So it wasn't exactly the the meteoric star <laughs> that I was hoping for. <laughs> we had to can a mill expansion we were doing at the time. A couple of crushers were going to put it in at Carousel Dam, which is still sitting in storage. It sort of bugs me most days that it still sit there. And had to you know pay cuts to directors and management and let people go. It was an initiation of fire, um, and people often sort of forget about those phases or don't really you know, think about that in that context. So for me, and again, it was like a, a really hard induction into being the top. And I remember you know, sitting down with Guido once and he sort of drew the, the Saracen triangle and said, okay, well, here's your workforce and the bottom here and as you go up, top of that little pinnacle up there, that's where you sit as a CEO. And then sitting on top of that, you've got all these stakeholders and you know, shareholders and everything else that sits there and wants a pound of flesh from you, particularly things aren't going well. So he said it can be the most lonely place you could ever find yourself as being a CEO. And I often say that to young people with aspirations of becoming. I said, fine, but make sure your, your C-suite behind you are really strong because it is a lonely place and you want to try and do that with a team of people rather than an individual. So for me, early days, I didn't have that team no. in place then. So it was, a, it was a lonely and tough ride. And again, it sort of made me stronger along the way. But then once you sort of have those those learnings and again... Um, Guido's one of his favourite sayings of all time, which rings in my mind forever, is stay on the bike. You know, as, as hard as it gets, if you fall off the bike, it's really hard. If you can stay on, particularly like the Stephen Bradbury type story, if you can stay on and else is falling over, yes. it creates a huge amount of opportunity. So for me, you know, when it gets tough, frankly, I prefer it in lots of ways because it's, um, it's like, why well, so I went back into gold rather than sort of the battery metals. It's sort of not the the in vogue um, commodity at the moment, but that's exactly why I did it. So for me, it's about trying to find value and just remaining really true to, to your values and what's important and you'll you know, ultimately do well over, over a full cycle rather than a, a point in time. This is steely determination to make it work. Yeah. And, and, and it's clearly come through in a whole range of things through your life, but that, that upbringing 
combined with having a guy like Guido in your corner yep. and being able to then tolerate fluctuations like a $200 overnight moving gold, yeah, uh, a decimation of your share price, yeah, and then getting up in the morning and yeah. continuing on. Oh, it's you know, and that stems back to being on the station, right? So we'd have yeah. floods, and then you'd have periods where that looks great, and then there wouldn't, within the blink of an eye, you'd have these periods where um, we'd have drought for four, five, six years in a row, and you know, a drought in a farming areas is difficult. Drought in some of those outback station areas is impossible. Yes, but we didn't have a default position. It wasn't a, a, a shoot we can pull and go. Okay, we, we're going to crack. We're going to go back to you know, our other business. We we're all in on that. So you just make things work, and sort of the tougher it gets, the the more you got to work harder. So for me, that's remained with myself and Marnie and Dan, and from my mum and dad all the way through. So you just find a way, and that's um, if you can find a way. The rewards are so much better if you can, you know that yourself, but also your teams actually had to really knuckle down. It's um, so much more rewarding on the back end, and it's not it's not necessarily monetary. It's actually fulfillment of what you've been able to set a goal and actually get there. Yep. As Saracen grew, you clearly built a team, um, and and just when you look at that that period of time, what are some of the highlights you took out of your time with Saracen? Oh, number one, and I've talked about these individuals in the past, but my first three graduates all became managers of Saracen. And it's something that at the time when I put them on, you know, Saracen wasn't a name. You know, there's lots of other companies I could have gone to. But um, these three individuals, uh, Matt Fitzgibbon, Brennan Ross and uh, Cleo Lunig, all joined us in sort of Met and Mining roles. And look, frankly, we didn't even know what we were doing as a company. I didn't know what I was doing as a CEO, but they came in on the journey and they grew with us and it was a huge amount of opportunity. And that's what I say to young people now, you know, particularly as we get to the point where Genesis goes from being 12 people in the in the business to hopefully thousands. You know, get in early because that's when you get the opportunities to get set with the business. And as it grows, you grow with the business from a career perspective. So for me, that's the that's, the, that's what I take the most pride in. And, and when I had people that were with me from the start, so the on board at Saracen, I think we, by the end of it, sits in my garage at home and we'll stay there for probably forever. But it, we had um, 28 people that were there from the get-go. We only lost one from the people that were there for plus 10 years on the 10-year honour board. So for me, you take a lot of pride in those people and seeing them and seeing them grow, and that's what I want to that's do. That's a real reflection. Yeah, and that's what I want to do for the rest of my career. So Genesis will be hopefully Saracen Mark II and try and do it all again. But when I get to the sort of the back end of my career, when I sort of don't have the drive to be a CEO every day, but I'd love to be involved with companies, not from sitting on a bunch of boards, which some people choose to. It's sitting with people that I have grown and nurtured along the way that want to become a CEO and provide them the same support that Guido provided me. A mentor-style role. Yeah. Saracen continued to grow and, I mean, this is, this is, I suppose, the ultimate icing on the cake. You had the opportunity to buy 50% of the super pit. Yeah. How, how was the background to that? How did it evolve? So again, going back to show you how these connected these worlds are. So when I went, you go back to the School of Mines days. Um, my very first job at the School of Mines in uh, 1997, first semester break was at the Super Pit, um, involved in the survey department. And I worked there every, basically all the way through for my whole career For that wasn't for four years. Um, so I was working in various departments, but mainly in the, in the survey area. So I knew a lot of people then and ironically, you know, 20 years plus onwards, there's still a bunch of those people still there. 
So he basically came there as a lower, single lowest paid person <laughs> in being a graduate um, surveyor. Uh, in fact, graduate surveyor was my first job out, but even then I was probably on $25,000 a year and working a fair, fair bit to do that, to then being a, you know, obviously the CEO of a, the, the JV of it and ultimately the MD of the company that owned it 100%. So it's a, it's a magical journey from sort of start to finish in lots of ways. But um, and as far as how it came about, um, I'd always known, obviously you talked about Bill earlier, so I've known Bill for a long period of time and he's always had quite public views about wanting to own the super pit one day. And for me, I sat there and when I was sort of going through the bidding process, and this was talking about being lonely at the top of the triangle, when we put in our bid for the super pit, $1.1 billion, we had $400 million of debt secured. I'll call it 1.2 with cost. We had $400 million of debt secured and then we had to raise $796 million of equity after I'd signed the deal which was binding. So they had to jump on a plane from Toronto. Just pause there. So a little bit of pressure? Oh, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> but when I was flying over, I had that moment where I was like, holy crap, are we doing the right thing here? And I remember Tony Keenan, and I've spoke to about um, Tony's farewell from the Northern Star Board a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, spoke about this moment where I was genuinely thinking about backing out and I was trying to find excuses to back out and he said, no, you've just got to back your conviction, back your work you've done, back your people. This is the right call. I'm so glad he said that because at that point I wasn't feeling like that. If he gave me an out, I probably would have taken it. And then when I, um, so over in Toronto, I went over by myself, put the bid in. We won the bid. It was supposed to be this sort of auction sort of process, but then yes. I got told straight away, no, nah, you've got it. You've, you've bought half the super pit. And uh, I remember at that moment, I was like, you know, when you're in an auction, you, you, you get it and you're like, holy no, what have I done? And then we're in this room in this lawyer's office in Toronto and the sort of petition opens up and there's all these lawyers and accountants come flying out. They've been working on it for, for Barrick Gold. There must have been 30 or 40 people in there with balloons and champagne. And I'm like, why are they celebrating? They'd have sold me the asset. <laughs> what, what have I done here? Because all I wanted, We've to, got rid of it. All I wanted to know, all I wanted to know what, what the next bit of it paid. You know, for me, I was just like, am I, you know, am I 40% too high here? Yeah, know? am I out? And it was very close in the end. And but what was really pleasing, a couple of things. So came back to Sydney. I was in a state, right? I hadn't slept for a couple of days. Flew back in to try and raise this $100 million of equity. So we had to do that. And it was already signed, so there was no backing out. It just had to be done. They ended in Sydney, went to the wrong building. So we had two banks on it, went to the wrong end of Sydney. So they had to then walk all the way down Pitt Street to go to the broker I should have been at. And I'm in my civvies and sort of hadn't shaved for a couple of days, looking a bit dishevelled. And literally, I must have run into every broker and fund manager going, aren't you about to do the largest equity raising in gold for an M&A deal in history, which it was at the time? I was like, yep, that's correct. And so, well, maybe you want to put a suit on to start with. I thought, yeah, I'm getting there. Did I remember that <laughs> oh, night? Wow. We're halfway through the roadshow and I'm in Sydney staying at the Wentworth or something like that. And I was literally in cold sweats. I was sweating profusely. I was just... That state where I was like still, took me a month or two before I became really comfortable that it was a, the right call. And the ultimate trigger was when Northern Star came in and bought the other half of the asset. And for me, that was the, the moment where I knew it was more vindicated for what we'd done. My goodness. That is an absolute ripper of a story. So the super pit, I mean, you think about it in that light, um, you acquire 50% ownership in the Kalgoorlie super pit in late 2019 part of the famous Golden Mile, whose first strike was made by prospector Paddy Hannon in 1893 for $1.1 $1. $1 mm. Like, the, it's some serious dough. Yeah, so and, and I know that you just had to go through that. Yeah. But, you know, like, you look back yeah. and you think, my goodness. 
So the eight the eight M and A deals we'd done in Saracens history prior to that, the sum total of all of those was about sixty five million, and then we did a one point one billion dollar deal. So it was a fair step up. And look, we weren't we weren't betting our company, but pretty close to it. And like I said, we had Newmont as our JV partner for the first month, and then obviously Northern Star came in and brought the other half. And to be honest, that was part of the rationale about getting comfort to to bid, as I knew that Bill's desire was to own the other half of it, and to his absolute credit, the um, the day I landed in Sydney to start the roadshow, Bill rang us up and said, let's catch up for coffee. And there was a UBS conference happening in Sydney on the day and um, he was a massive advocate for what we'd done. He'd just been, he'd come second, the sort of bridesmaid to get in the deal, but he was actively telling shareholders and fund managers that um, you know, it was a fantastic price and fantastic acquisition and you know, we'll do really well with it. So that would, really was a catalyst for us to help get that equity raising away. So his support in that regard. And then obviously a couple of months later, we had him as a JV partner, which, um, yeah, it was just a really good coming together and, you know, very much like-minded companies coming together to run a, to run a really good asset. Well, that is the end of part A with Rally Finlayson. It's stories like these that you can't help but get wrapped up in. Part B is ready to go now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Harleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.